on. I'm on three seats. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on the stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Cameron Gasmer, and thank you for joining us. On tonight's show, correspondents Andrew Garapo and Inbayini Embarrassan continue their conversation with Tompkins County District Attorney Matt Van Hooten in the second part of WICB News' series looking into crime and criminal justice in Ithaca and Tompkins County. But first, we have Community Beat with George Christopher and Andrew Garapo. At 2 p.m., campus officials at Cornell University have confirmed a bomb threat has been received for parts of the Ithaca campus. Cornell says police received a call of bombs being placed in the law school, Goldwyn Smith, Upson Hall, and Kennedy Hall buildings. Cornell has now expanded the avoid order to include all of central campus. Ithaca Mayor Savante Merrick says Ithaca Police Department's SWAT unit is responding and that those in the area should monitor campus alerts. Certain buildings on Yale University's campus were evacuated on Friday after a bomb threat. Columbia University student newspaper is currently reporting evacuations there now due to a bomb threat. A pedestrian was struck and killed by a box truck on South Meadow Street. According to FingerLakes1.com, the Ithaca police are investigating this incident, but thus far no tickets have been issued. The identities of the pedestrian and the driver have not been released. As Congress stalls on major bills, more and more cities across America are trying new policies of their own in economics, criminal justice reform, and environmental responsibility. In the last few weeks, Los Angeles launched a basic minimum income experiment. In Philadelphia, they passed a ban on traffic stops by police for minor infractions. And now, in Ithaca, the city has announced it's becoming the first U.S. city to begin 100% decarbonization of its buildings, an urban climate change milestone. Ithaca's plan will cover electrification projects for 1,000 residential buildings and 600 commercial buildings in the first phase of a total 6,000 building phase. Heating systems, including water heating and space heating, are big drivers of energy use in residential and commercial buildings and are targets of climate projects and plans to be completed by 2030. For Ithaca, buildings represent 40% of its carbon emissions profile. The city is using a combination of public and private financing to undertake this historic effort. Tompkins County has given its first doses of the Pfizer vaccine to children between the ages of 5 and 11. According to CNY Central, the clinics opened on Friday at the Ithaca Mall vaccine site. The county plans to roll out more vaccine clinics in the coming weeks. The county health department is also hosting a COVID-19 town hall tomorrow from 4 to 5 p.m. Scientists at Cornell University are working to develop a vaccine for the Nipah virus. The Nipah virus is primarily seen in Southeast Asia and Australia. It's similar to the coronavirus in some ways, but is both less transmissible and more deadly than COVID. The virus has not been detected in the United States. Scientists at Cornell are working to create a vaccine to prevent its spread among livestock. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Cameron Gasmer. With reports of violent and other crimes taking place in the area coming to light nearly every week, we at WICB News decided to take a closer look into whether or not there has been an actual rise in crime and gain perspectives from some of the stakeholders involved in the criminal justice system in Tompkins County. 
Today, we continue WICB news correspondents Mbayini Embarrison and Andrew Garapo's conversation with Tompkins County District Attorney Matt Van Hooten on the issue. If you missed the first part of the interview, you can find it on our website, WICB.org, or by searching Ithaca Now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. As violent crime rates across the country rise, the memories of the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed almost a year and a half ago seem to be fading in the public consciousness. In this multi-part series, we at WICB are investigating the nature of police and criminal justice reform in Ithaca, Tompkins County, and the state of New York in the aftermath of the George Floyd protest, perceived increasing crime rates, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. I'm when you first got into office, 2016, I believe, when you ran for the first 17, time? Yeah, 17, yeah. Well, 17 was my first day. Yeah. Uh, it was around 80, and you dr- dramatically lowered it. Uh, can you tell us uh, some of the ways you managed to do that and some of the pushback you had to deal with? I mean, I, I could say it was a community effort. I mean, I certainly don't take uh, credit for it, I mean, although I, I, I was supportive of the overall community effort to reduce the jail population. And some of that is through treatment court, some of it's through wellness and recovery or mental health court that uh, started two years ago. And I was very much in favor. I was on the task force that um, was involved in creating and and implementing that. Um, Can you explain a little more how they work? So a, a, a treatment court, whether it's mental health or substance abuse is an alternative to incarceration in the sense that you're taking someone who is coming into the court system who has uh, a struggle or a challenge that is causing them to, to commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And instead of giving them a punitive sentence, you're, you're saying, why don't you participate in this mm-hmm. intensive program where you're going to be tested, you're going to be supervised, you're going to be supported. And at the end of that process, which is about eight to 18 months, depending on setbacks and relapses and things like that. Um, You're going to come out of it with a good support system and housing and a job, and you're going to have seen a dentist and a doctor and, uh, you know, have the supports that you need to be successful and healthy. Uh, And those are things, you know, we have, we have felony treatment court, we have misdemeanor treatment court for substance abuse. We have now wellness and recovery, which is the mental health court for misdemeanor and felony cases. Uh, we expect to implement LEAD anytime now. Uh, and that that's gonna divert people from even coming into the justice system. Uh, it's a pre-arrest program. Mm-hmm. So a police officer has the ability to take somebody who was you know, clearly struggling with you know, poverty-related issues or mental health or whatever it might be, connect them with a caseworker instead of being arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's, there's, it's just, I think, that the community has put an emphasis on it and uh, it wouldn't work without my support, but we are 100% on board supportive of those programs because public safety, you know, it's not... Putting somebody in jail for six months, <clears throat> they come out with the same challenges and struggles that they went in with. That's not protecting the community. Not to mention, I'm sure, the cost of uh, putting someone in jail. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously finances are, are relevant. Uh, you know, I would rather see somebody become stable and healthy and, what? you know. Do these programs have um, expungement uh, opportunities? Well, if you, if you um, are in misdemeanor treatment court, for example, uh, if you're successful, you're going to end up with either charges being dismissed or you'd be allowed to plead to a, a violation. Uh, so like you're starting out with a misdemeanor, that's a crime. Yeah. That would result in a criminal conviction. But even if it's reduced to a violation like disorderly conduct, something that is a ticket, it's not a criminal offense, um, that results in the case being sealed. So the end result is that your, your charges are either dismissed or sealed mm-hmm. at the end of successful completion. Okay. Um, That's wonderful. You know, I do get there. There was a law change a couple of years ago now that allows for people to ask for expungement if it's been 10 years uh, and they haven't been arrested for something in the meantime. And, and I always support those. Um, Can you explain a little bit the difference between sealed and expungement? Uh, I'm not really sure there is a difference for, for purposes of, well, that's, that's not true. Uh, it's not a difference that is very significant to me. It might be significant to somebody who's applying to the FBI. Uh, I mean, sealing can happen for various reasons. If you go to trial and you're acquitted, um, that's your, your charges would be sealed. Mm-hmm. The, the record of your arrest would be sealed. Um, Expungement, yeah, I mean, it's a very subtle difference. I'm not sure I can really even... Like, who could still it. see a sealed charge versus expungement, which is completely erased, right? I don't, I don't think there's a scenario where, like, the CIA or the FBI or federal government could not get access. Yeah. I think uh, schools do FBI background checks, correct? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, working in with children in schools, that's often an issue. No. You eliminated cash bail. Uh, that's pretty big. Uh, there's a big movement to do that around the country now. Plenty of other states have started to uh, follow suit. You did it uh, before the state had made it a law and before it was uh, pretty popular. Uh, can you explain to us... Um, uh, why the process, the pushback, you know, all that? Well, to be, to be totally clear, I, I didn't eliminate cash bail. What I did was no. uh, start a policy of presumptive release. So for nonviolent offenses, for, for low, lower level felonies, uh, things that were not really violent in nature. Um, the last thing I want is for someone to be incarcerated on bail because of their financial means or lack of financial means. So I mean, I'm very aware of the disparity between you know, someone with financial resources, someone who is rich, if they're charged with the same thing as someone who is poor and they just post $5,000 bail and, and they're out within 10 minutes. Yeah. But this person who is without resources, you know, they may lose their job after a day or two uh, of not showing up or their family could be evicted. Uh, you know, the consequences are, are severe and, and long-term uh, and that's not fair. So that was the basis of my policy of presumptive release. You know, that's, <clears throat> that was before bail reform and bail reform kind of made that moot. 
uh, because the philosophies are very similar. Um, you know, but the point is that um, that we don't want people sitting in jail because they don't have financial resources. Sure. And I should have clarified for nonviolent crimes. <laughs> right, cash right. bail. I mean, the you know, public safety is is my overarching responsibility, and, and that's a very subjective term. But if there is someone who is a threat to the community, I think that's probably the most basic or accepted definition of public safety is at least figuring out how to protect the community from that person. On public safety, um, recent, uh, one of the neighborhoodscout.com and a couple of crime statistics we look from the state say that property crimes seem to be up in Ithaca as well as they affect people in Ithaca more than overall average of the state. You're more likely to be a victim of property crime in Ithaca than you are in the entirety of New York State. Really? Yeah. I, I haven't seen that well, data, but, um, you know, we have we have uh, <clears throat> a Walmart, we have Lowe's and Home Depot that are right next to the jungle where a lot of the homeless people live. And there is a lot of, of low-level theft that happens there. <clears throat> and, you know, we look at that, we don't, we typically don't prosecute someone who is stealing food from the grocery store or stealing, you know, crimes of poverty. Um, at the same time, the only way to connect some people with services sometimes is to, if they are charged, to get them in the treatment court, if, they, if it's substance abuse related or, you know, get them some supervision and stability. So, but, you know, it's, I think it's probably true that a lot of those crimes don't get prosecuted, which you know, makes Walmart unhappy with us. Yeah, no, I think um, it's you're right. It's important to clarify exactly who and what these crimes are. Right. I mean, if it's a small store who is getting you know stolen from, that affects them much more than Walmart. Mm -hmm. But you know, we look at every case differently, and and every every case involves human beings who are you know all have <clears throat> needs and people who need them and. So, you know, we just try to look at it uh, holistically. Mm -hmm. Just going off of that, is there anything being done to, like, help the homeless people, food shelters? There are. I mean, there we have a, a shelter. We have, uh, I mean, DSS uh, will put people up in the local hotels mm -hmm. when it gets cold. A lot of the people who live in the jungle don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They would rather be in the jungle. So, you know, it's tough when... The community wants to to quote unquote help people, mm -hmm. and they don't want the help. Mm, uh, yeah, you know, there's strings attached that they don't want. <clears throat> so that's that's a struggle. I mean, there's probably huge conversations that we could have as a country about how to treat our people and how to, you know, universal health care and and you know taxation of the rich and and infrastructure and all those things that sure. kind of are bigger than my job, but <clears throat> still could make a huge difference. I mean, if, if we didn't have the level of poverty and, and the level of, you know, <clears throat> dysfunction in our country, I think crime would be a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of necessity crime out there, which is, you know, very hard to prosecute. Uh, recently, uh, the Lancet Medical Journal put out a study that suggested police-related deaths and uh, police-related misconduct routinely and uh, very drastically undercounted. How does your office acquire its data? 
about police about uh, police misconduct, uh, 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 murder, uh, crime rate, uh, all sorts of things. Well, I I, I keep track of <clears throat> um, every arrest that happens in Tompkins County. I've been coming in every Saturday and, and putting in my own data uh, to measure the demographics. So who's being arrested and by whom, what agencies, where they are being arrested. Uh, I'm working on that with the idea that <clears throat> there's going to be some help from the community justice center that is still being formulated by the county to to provide that transparency to the community. I hope there'll be a public safety dashboard type. Can you explain website. a little more what the community justice center is? Well, that's that's a great question. I mean, the, the idea it was formed because of Executive Law 203 or Executive Order 203. <clears throat> uh, and the reimagining plan uh, to take a look at data, to communicate with the community, uh, to give out information to the community, to be more transparent, uh, you know, with our our justice systems, you know, what's happening in it. Um, I think there's going to be a coordinator <clears throat> and a data analyst. Those jobs are. They've been advertised, they were re-advertised. I think there's 10 candidates for one and five for another. I've tried to get on the interview panel and, and as so far I'm not. Okay. But, Can you, um, uh, they haven't allowed you in the interview panel? No. You think that it's, they you might know, want you on there? <laughs> I would think so. Bureaucracy is, uh, you know, kind yeah. of, I mean, I've, this is my fifth year of being mm-hmm. involved so closely with bureaucracy and it's a, you know, paperwork it can be it's a thing yeah so uh but to go back to your question uh you know police deaths the last officer involved shooting was more than two years ago Mm -hmm. and i got the phone call that it had happened i went to the police station where it happened um and when there is an officer involved shooting now the attorney's general's the attorney general's office is responsible for investigating that as an independent agency. So I don't have any jurisdiction over that anymore. Mm. Um, back then, <clears throat> I had to coordinate with the attorney general's office to um, prove to them that it was not something that they had jurisdiction over. It. And back then, it was based on another executive order that. Um, required the attorney general's office to investigate any death of an unarmed civilian. So thankfully this happened in the the vestibule of the police department and there was very clear video footage that showed the guy, the civilian, pulling out a huge knife and trying to stab an officer with it in the neck and the officer shot him and killed him. I was able to get that video and give it to the attorney general's office. Um, and then they said, okay, that's, you have jurisdiction. I presented the case to the grand jury for them to determine whether it was justified by self-defense mm-hmm. and the grand jury determined that it was self-defense. Um, so, I mean, we're a small enough community where if something like that happens, an officer involved shooting, mm-hmm. um, and there've been three that I can remember since I've been an attorney here in town. Uh, that was one one that happened when I was DA. Um, misconduct is a more difficult um, concept 
I know in several uh, misconduct cases with police, uh, you prefer uh, a special prosecutor to handle those kind of things. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, there, there's been a couple of high profile cases uh, where um, there was a rape allegation. Uh, and that started out with a, a victim of a sexual assault coming in to my office and sitting here in this spot telling me her story and uh, explaining to me who had done it to her. It was a sheriff's deputy. Uh, and to me, it was clear that we work so closely with the sheriff's office. Um, I, I could just imagine this young woman sitting in my office or coming in to meet with me and walking by several sheriff's deputies uh, who were coworkers of this person who had violated her. Um, you know, that the perception of that is wrong. The perception is that it's unfair one way or the other. So I think it's really important that the community perceive that everything is happening fairly and impartially and that there's no special favors going one way or the other. I'm not treating the officer more harshly than I would if he was a civilian. I'm not giving him any special favors. And I think the only way to do that in that kind of case is by having someone from another county come in and prosecute the case. Some other states have proposed legislation just to that effect. I just wanted to touch on like police in general. Could you just explain about the police reform that the IPD is putting out? And I remember reading that it mentioned that they're going to judge the seriousness of the crime first and then you know, send out either police officers armed, unarmed, or like mental health officials. And just, could you just talk about that and explain how that's going to work? Well, I wish I knew. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I, there's a working group right now that is meeting, I think, weekly, if not more than once a week, to talk about those questions. You know, who is going to respond to calls, how to triage them, how to identify what Mm-hmm. what's happening and what level of, of response is needed. Um, I asked to be on that and I was invited to be a technical advisor, which means so far I've gone to a two-day onboarding. And when I tell them, when I email and say, hey, you know, I'm ready to go, when's the next meeting that you want me at? They say, oh, just wait, we'll get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. So why do you think the uh, beat dragon, cold shoulder? I don't know if I would say cold shoulder. I think that they're they're trying to uh, run the process the way that they want to run it. And there's two civilian um, chairs, co-chairs of of that task force. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to them asking for my help and Mm -hmm. my input and my perspective, which I think is unique. You know, I see a side of the police department that nobody else sees. And I want to give my input to help this process be the best that it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what they're talking about right now. Yeah, because I not in the room. yeah I read that they were gonna send out unarmed police officers, and I find that still a little problematic because you know, got guns aren't the only reason people are getting hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah, it's very, physical it's, force and stuff that people can use. It's complicated. I mean, sending. I, I was part of the one of the subcommittees last year as we were putting together the plan that was submitted to the state. And we spent a lot of time looking at other communities and how they handle mental health calls, for example, and 
Um, there are some teams, you know, that, that go out and they go out in plain clothes and they're police officers, but they are trained in de-escalation and trained in, in putting someone at ease and just talking to them and respecting them and establishing rapport and, you know, things like that are impossible to do when you show up with body armor and a gun and, you know, a taser and all that stuff. So, um, I think these guys did have guns, but they weren't, you know, militarized. Mm -hmm. uh, at least one there was a documentary on HBO. I think it was based on San Antonio and their team. But there's a, I mean, there are many examples in Eugene, Oregon, the Cahoots program uh, of okay. mental health response teams that work together with the police. And you know, I hope that we end up with something like that because mm -hmm. there are a lot of times when. Someone can show show up in triage and de-escalate and um, never requires, you know, a true police response. But that's it's you know the first time that something goes bad, then you're you know being second guessed and and so it's 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 not it's an easy risky not an easy thing. Other cases of police brutality, there was uh, Cardi Ferguson wrongly arrested. Uh, it didn't seem there was much discipline in the officers. And even when there was an officer, I guess, uh, prosecuted, when it did kind of fall into, you know, more of the DA legal uh, purview, uh, Officer Kyle Pag Pagligoni. Palangeli. Palangeli, I'm very sorry. He pleaded guilty to perjury and searched an apartment illegally, and he was sentenced to pay a $500 fine, uh, one-year conditional discharge, and I believe 100 hours community service. Do you think that's fair? Well, the most significant consequence of that that you didn't mention was that he was not able to be a police officer anymore. Uh, so my office, under uh, we, we uncovered his perjury. Uh, we uncovered his illegal search of the apartment. Um, I had a special prosecutor appointed because I was a witness and two other attorneys in my office were an actual witness in that case. Um, and it happened, you know, that we uncovered it right in this office. Um, so, you know, I think that he um, got a punishment that was comparable legal sentence that was comparable to what a member of the public would have gotten. Well, no, I mean, oh, for perjury, you're saying? For perjury. Okay. But the most important thing is that he is no longer a police officer. He's no longer able to affect the community. Um, okay, you know, that was what was my priority is that, you know, he was not able to continue as a police officer when we had no trust in him anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I just wanted to touch on the special prosecutor. Are there any like criteria that you apply when you look for one? Uh, there are sometimes, I mean, it's typically another district attorney mm -hmm. from one of the neighboring counties. So in the example of the police officer, the sheriff's deputy who was charged with rape, um, I asked the judge to, to choose. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have any influence at all over who it was. Um, <clears throat> with the Palangeli case, uh, I approached Weed and Wetmore from Shalom County and asked him to be the special prosecutor. He agreed, and then the court has to order it. Uh, it involves filing a motion with the court to ask for the appointment of the special prosecutor. And I asked for him to do it because uh, he's 
probably the most experienced DA. And, you know, I think he's kind of a hard ass, to be honest. Uh, and I wanted somebody who was going to be a hard ass to handle that case. One of the little more uh, criminal justice reform oriented questions, uh, plea bargains. I know they're probably very, most cases are uh, plead out of court. Majority of people do not go to trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people think they're coercive and deny people their day in court for the sake of efficiency. You know, pos- prosecutors could potentially uh, bluff defense attorneys into pleading guilty for lesser offense. People who may be innocent or may have been acquitted, they don't get their, um, their trial. Uh, you know, the more serious the charge is, the greater the fear. So some prosecutors can just throw everything but the kitchen sink at you. And uh, whatever sticks, you know, they can use to negotiate. In the UK, that's, that's uh, illegal. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think it's fair? Do you think that should be the policy for Ithaca? So there's, there's so many, you know, that was a long question. Well, there are a lot of uh, facets <laughs> to it. I can go slower. I can go <laughs> piece by piece. If you like. Well, it's impossible to give everyone a trial. Uh, and I, I think that in general, across the country, there are many places where the plea bargaining system is coercive. And if you are put in a position as a defendant where you're in jail and you're, you're given the option of, you can plead guilty and get out of jail, or you can stay in jail and maintain your innocence. That's wrong. That's coercive. That's exactly what we should not be doing. Um, you talked about bluffing the defense attorney. One thing that we had done before and now is the law is open discovery. In other words, everything that I have, every piece of evidence I have uh, in the case is given over to the defense attorney within 20 days uh, if the person is, is incarcerated. They know exactly how strong the case is. They know the weaknesses in the case. Uh, our, we don't overcharge here. Uh, so, you know, we're not playing a game here. This is, this is about people's lives. Uh, when we make an offer, it might, it's going to be to a reduced charge. Uh, or it might be with conditions that you go to uh, inpatient or you address a need. Uh, you know, jail is typically the very last resort and sometimes it's mandatory. You know, yeah. The guy who's sitting in jail on the, the sex offense uh, has been in there since May. If he's convicted, he has to go to prison yeah. uh, based upon the severity of the charges. But, you know, I think I, I've, I know there's a book out that somebody wrote, a law professor wrote, about plea bargaining, how horrible it is, and how it should not happen. Um, you know, it, it benefits individuals who are charged with crimes as well. Uh, you know, if we went to trial on everything and people were convicted of the top charges on every case, uh, that that's I don't think that's as good as getting a reduction and you know getting probation or getting reduction and being you know, made to pay a restitution or something. Um, you know, but I, I, I've, you know, listened to some podcasts. I mean, I've listened to one about the Cleveland's, uh, justice system. That's one of the seasons of serial. And, you know, I, I read, <clears throat> read books, uh, try to keep myself educated on what's happening across the country in the justice system. And, and I know what's happening. Uh, there are systems where the plea bargaining system is coercive. You know, I've, I feel very comfortable 
sitting here today saying ours is not. Mm. You know, do people feel pressure and stressed out when they're faced with criminal charges? Of course. You know, that sucks. Nobody's happy. Yeah. You know, if you are facing consequences for something that you did in a moment of weakness or you know, poor judgment, you know, that's that doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It doesn't mean that you know, you should go away forever, but there are consequences and we try to make sure that those are fair. And, you know, nobody is punished for rejecting an offer. Have you, um, speaking of alternatives uh, to incarceration, have you explored any uh, restorative justice programs? I have, yes. Uh, I'm talking about it. Uh, I'm part of a group of, of prosecutors uh, that is, uh, was organized by the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution down at John Jay College, and it's called Beyond Big Cities. It's a group of smaller jurisdiction uh, stakeholders, and uh, there's a we had we had two days, two Zoom calls, because people were in all the different states uh, talking about restorative justice and how it can be translated to a smaller community. Uh, and I'm also, I'm not done yet. I've, I've been reading Danielle Sered's book, Until We Reckon, uh, which talks about uh, restorative justice in New York City, in the Bronx. Uh, you know, it's, it's something I think is really a valuable part of, of criminal justice and I wanna bring it here. There's a case I have right now that I've been talking to defense attorneys about doing it uh, with, it's a violent case and, uh, you know, but it's, it's not for every case. But the accountability, the understanding of, of, the, of what you did and how it affected other people and tailoring a response that, you know, provides some insight into what happened, I think is really valuable and, you know, does um, allow for people to, you know, take that experience and move in, into a positive direction as opposed to just being bitter and angry about it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Just a couple more questions. I'm staying busy. <laughs> There's been a large uh, paradigm shift on the war on drugs, uh, prosecution for drug crimes. I believe, looking at statistics, there are still some people in Ithaca's or Tompkins County prison for drug crimes and drug paraphernalia crimes. Do you think that we should continue prosecuting for these, or do you think that um, certain drug criminals need to be prosecuted in this matter? Well, um, <clears throat> we don't have anybody in our jail solely for a drug charge. Uh, there's one guy who's serving a violation of probation sentence and has new charges that are drug charges. His, his sentence on the violation of probation is over on the 15th, and then he'll be out, but he still has those drug charges. Um, so the people that we charge for drug offenses in Tompkins County are entrepreneurs, they're dealers, there are people who are causing overdoses and people who are causing harm in the community. Uh, even those people, uh, it's very rare to find someone who is selling drugs, who's not using them and who doesn't have a drug problem. So we, we want them to go into felony treatment court. We want them to go into the alternative to incarceration that allows them to come out of it with no jail and with no uh, felony record. 
so that's I mean that's something that I we you know when we do have a drug felony charge if somebody's a dealer uh, we give them the opportunity to go into treatment court we had a, an overdose in January um, where a young woman and her her partner sold her cousin what they thought was cocaine, it was fentanyl, and four people overdosed immediately. As soon as they got it, one person died. Um, you know, she's she's going to rehab. So, you know, it's not, it's, I, I, I don't think we should be prosecuting lower level drug users, um, and we typically don't. The only reason to do it would be to connect them with treatment when they're really desperate and really in bad shape. And then, you know, they would go into a treatment court but we're not putting people in jail for drugs. No, is there anything else that um, you want to add? I, I, I you're, you're done? Just one more. Okay. <laughs> Promise. Um, well, it's two more. Let me just organize my notes a little bit here. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, uh, Nige Green trial. Uh, there was a bit of controversy surrounding that one. Um, he was tried twice and, and convicted, you know, uh, but uh, there was um, there was some uh, some people had said that you had had a relationship with the Jerry Foreman, that he had known you, and that uh, that it wasn't quite appropriate to keep him as Jerry Foreman. Um, what would you, how would you respond to that? So I'm, I'm certainly aware of the uh, the website that was put up that caused a lot of people to jump on the bandwagon. The website was put up by the family of the defendant. They are not uh, obligated to tell the truth like I am. Uh, we talked during jury selection about the fact that the, the jury four person was the son of a, a former client of mine. I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. I never had a conversation with him. I never spoke to him. And the fact is the defense attorney questioned him extensively about whether he could be fair in the case, whether he, you know, anything about knowing me or that I did some legal work for his, his parents uh, would cause him to be unfair to the defendant. And there were reasons why the defense attorney liked him as a juror because he was young. He identified with the defense or with the defendant uh, that's all in the transcript people chose to ignore that and just focus on this these buzzwords it's like clickbait sure. uh, and I mean there's no doubt in my mind that <coughs> bless you that that trial was fair you know I know people talked a lot about the the interview of uh, the defendant by the state police and they lied to him and they say gave him a cup of water and said there's truth serum in that you know the fact is uh, he never really said anything that was helpful to my case in that interview. It was it was not a confession. It wasn't he didn't tell the truth. Uh, it wasn't a false confession because he didn't confess. Uh, so and that was reviewed by the trial judge. It was reviewed by the appellate court. And you know, there, as I sit here right now, there's no doubt in my mind that Najee Green is the one who killed Anthony Mazir. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're arguing with people that aren't obligated to tell the truth, you're never gonna win. Yeah. 
So, you know, my, my defense to it is to do my job and to, you know, we argued the appeal and, and the appeal was denied. Um, you know, that's, we, you know, we did everything right in mm -hmm. the case. And there were two trials, like you said, and one of them was, um, <clears throat> there were two victims. One was stabbed, Raheem Williams was stabbed and he lived. Anthony Nazaire was stabbed and he died. Initially, Raheem was, uh, he was found guilty of assaulting Raheem, uh, but they couldn't decide. It was a hung jury on Anthony's death. And there was one holdout juror who, for whatever reason, we talked to jurors afterwards, she was never going to vote guilty. And all the jurors were, the rest of the jurors were frustrated with her. But, you know, that happens. So we tried the case again, and the same witnesses testified, the same evidence was put in, and the, the jury found Najee Green guilty of murder. That's really hard to do in, in Ithaca, because jurors take this responsibility very seriously. They're, they're thoughtful, they're critical. Um, you know, getting a, 12 people to agree on something of that magnitude is very significant. Mm -hmm. I would imagine in this community, there can't be that many degrees of separation between a juror and who's ever being tried. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, people know each other, but the question is, you know, if you know them, does that make it impossible for you to be fair and impartial? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, and the very last, just a more well, philosophical question I think is appropriate for a DA. Do you think it's better for a guilty man to go free or an innocent man to be put in jail? Guilty man to go free, 100%. Right answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, it was really wonderful. Uh... This interview showed us just one of the many moving parts of the criminal justice system locally here in Ithaca. There's no one answer to our questions, whether it comes to rising crime, where it comes from, or what's fair for many people involved in the process, including the victim and the accused. We would like to thank District Attorney Matt Van Houten for leading us one step closer to a better understanding of what justice entails for him in Tompkins County. For WICB News, this is Inbaini Anbarasin. And I'm Andrew Garabo. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org, and if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud, and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscasts every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Connor Hibbard, and Programming Director Lou Barron. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Himadri Seth, and this week's correspondents Andrew Garapo and Inbaini Embarrassin. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We'll be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Cameron Gasmer, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.